This is study 8 from the book of Job, drawn from chapters 32 to 37, where a young man sounds off. The next five chapters of this book are rather strange. The discussion between Job and his three friends has come to its end. A young man called Elihu speaks up with this five-chapter-long speech. An uninterrupted harangue, in fact. Unlike the three friends, he is an Israelite, and he is young. He is not mentioned anywhere else in the book, as the others are, all of which makes many people think his contribution is a late addition to the book. Perhaps. But we have it as part of Scripture, so we need to look at it and may expect to get something from it. Four main points arise from what he said, of which only one really contributes much to the argument of the book. These four points are 1. He is a brash and arrogant young fellow who says things that do not make him a very likeable character. 2. After announcing that he is going to tell the three friends what they should have said, he says a great deal that is not significantly very different. 3. His main new argument is that by what has happened, God has been training Job, disciplining him to straighten him out, which we may well question given the harshness of what has happened to Job. And fourthly, in his last chapter, he says things which do serve as a preparation for the following word from the Lord. I'm not going to read all these five chapters, you will be glad to hear, but pick out verses from various places to follow the scheme above. First, about arrogant Elihu. This is in chapter 32, first verses 6 to 12. So Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzzite, said, I am young in ears and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought, age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. And then from verse 17. I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know, for I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Inside I am like bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I will show no partiality, nor will I flatter anyone. For if I were skilled in flattery, 
my maker would soon take me away. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I am about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. And then on to chapter 34. Elihu said, Hear my words, you wise men. Listen to me, you men of learning. For the ear tests words, as the tongue tastes food. Let us discern for ourselves what is right. Let us learn together what is good. And on to verse 7. Is there anyone like Job, who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evil doers. He associates with the wicked. For he says, there is no profit in trying to please God. So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. And then still further on to chapter 36. Bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said in God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my Maker. Be assured that my words are not false. One who has perfect knowledge is with you. Oh dear. Not a nice lad, I think. Fortunately, not all, or not many, young people are like that. Not much to learn there, except possibly what not to do and say. And the second point was the ideas repeated. After claiming to know better, Elihu is unable to get away from the basic cause-effect principle that dominated the comments and advice of the three friends. Listen to this. I'm back to chapter 34 and verse 5. Elihu said, Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I am considered a liar. Although I am guiltless, his arrow inflicts an incurable wound. Is there anyone like Job who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evil doers. He associates with the wicked. For he says, there is no profit in trying to please God. So listen to me, you people of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. And then jumping ahead to verse 21. His eyes are on the ways of mortals. He sees their every step. There is no deep shadow, no utter darkness, where evildoers can hide. God has no need to examine people further, that they should come before him for judgment. 
Without inquiry, he shatters the mighty and sets up others in their place because he takes note of their deeds. He overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He punishes them for their wickedness where everyone can see them because they turn from following him and have no regard for any of his ways. They caused the cry of the poor to come before him so that he heard the cry of the needy. And then on to chapter 36 and verse 5. God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if people are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. And finally, in chapter 34, verse 11, he repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. All those statements, and perhaps particularly that last verse, take us right back to the CEP that we have seen has to be rejected. And now to point three, which is much the most important new idea that Elihu advances. Point three, the discipline of the Lord. We might accept what he says on this subject, except that we have to remember the appalling multiple disasters that Job has experienced. They make it very difficult to accept the validity of Elihu's arguments. Here is what he said. This is chapter 33, verse 14 onwards. For God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain, with constant distress in their bones, so that their body finds food repulsive, and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing, and their bones, once hidden, now stick out. They draw near to the pit, and their life to the messengers of death. Yet if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright, and he is gracious to that person, and says to God, Spare them from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's, let them be restored as in the days of their youth, then that person can pray to God and find favour with him. They will see God's face 
and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being and they will go to others and say, I have sinned, I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. God does all these things to a person, twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. And then to chapter 36 and verse 5. God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if people are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbour resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. But those who suffer he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place, free from restriction, to the comfort of your table, laden with choice food. Elihu thinks that Job is simply experiencing the discipline of the Lord, designed to aid his spiritual life by developing his wisdom. So he says, chapter 33, verses 29 and 30, God does all these things to a person, twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. Half-truths are always dangerous, and this is a half-truth. The writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 12, verses 5 to 11, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, 
It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? Yes, but surely there are limits to what can be called discipline before it degenerates into abuse. Those who experience difficult childhoods, perhaps the early death of their mother, or being sent back home at an early age for schooling and not seeing their parents who are working in another country for many years, being forced to toughen up and become self-dependent at an early age, often rise to high positions in society. But would we consider such things desirable? Surely not. Somewhere we have to draw a line between what is a strengthening discipline and a result of the normal chaos of life. And this must apply to the Lord and his people, as well as families on this earth. What happened to Job must fall into the NCL category. So, sorry Elihu, but I think you're entirely wrong and have overstepped the mark in telling Job he has been disciplined by the Lord. It is also hard to find New Testament examples of discipline at all. What Jesus did in delaying his journey to the house of Martha and Mary as their brother Lazarus lay dying might be said to have a disciplinary effect, strengthening their faith. But I find it hard to think of any other examples where he acted like that. And the obvious question for me to ask is, do you agree? Finally, we come to item four. Preparation for the word from the Lord. Living in the UK, we get plenty of poor weather, but only very seldom is it really bad weather. Tornadoes, really heavy rain, extreme cold, or dangerously hot weather, we do not get. But in most of the world, these things are awe-inspiring, dangerous, and life-threatening things that happen regularly. So to express his view of what the Lord is like, Elihu uses these illustrations, and I'm reading from chapter 36, verse 27. He, God, draws up the drops of water, which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture, and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? See how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea. This is the way he governs the nations, and provides food in abundance. He fills his hands with lightning, and commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. At this my heart pounds, leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. 
he thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvellous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour, so that everyone he has made may know his work. He stops all people from their labour, the animals take cover, they remain in their dens, the tempest comes out from its chamber, the cold from the driving winds, the breath of God produces ice and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture, he scatters his lightning through them, at his direction they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish people or to water his earth and show his love. He then challenges Job to explain these things in the following verses. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who has perfect knowledge? And then he equates Job's inability to understand the way of the Lord with him, in his private world, with his inability to understand the weather. It is one picturesque way to talk about the NCL. It is hard to know what to do with Elihu when Paul says that all scripture is profitable. Elihu's declared aim is to seek wisdom and he has a deep trust in the Spirit of God to do that in chapter 33, the first four verses, when he said, But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I am about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life though we may argue with much of what he said. He has a high view of the Lord when he says, So listen to me, far be it from God to do evil. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? But when I read that, I missed out verse 11 where he falls back into CEP thinking, saying he repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. He is presumably trying to correct Job here, though it was not so much that Job denied the justice of God as that he was annoyed that he could not connect up with it. Elihu calls strongly for repentance when he says, Suppose someone says to God, I am guilty, but will offend no more. Teach me what I cannot see. If I have done wrong, I will not do so again. Should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide. Not I. So tell me what you know. It is even questionable whether Job failed to repent. By promising not to repeat his errors, 
he at least promised the most neglected part of repentance. Jesus always looked to people's future as much as their past when he said, Go and sin no more. Probably Elihu's best contribution is the good part of the half-truth I accused him of earlier. He says, God does all these things to a person, twice even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life might shine on them. That is fine, provided we don't go on to say that correction is the purpose of suffering. Yes, we will experience suffering in this life. Yes, we can learn many valuable lessons from it and grow because of it. No, we cannot and must not go on to equate our suffering with our potential for growth any more than we can equate it with punishment for our sins. Someone has rightly said, the greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. Thank you, Elihu, for forcing us to think about these difficult things. <laughs>